Hello, my name's Michael Bassett and welcome to Bright Future. We're all having to balance more as we navigate this pandemic. Many are balancing home life with work life. A lot of people are just trying to balance their books. Businesses are balancing the safety of their employees with their bottom line. And governments are balancing the need to track a deadly pandemic with people's right to privacy. Today, I talked to Stefan Hamel, a seasoned independent digital marketing and analytics consultant, innovator, teacher, speaker, and advisor with a strong interest in user privacy and the ethical use of data. We've learned a lot about contact tracing from other countries, and Stefan and I talk about who's getting things right and how costly, in terms of privacy and sacrifice, that can be. Will our need for privacy mean we have to live with lockdown measures for longer because we can't track as effectively? We also talk about trust and consent and how important they will be to any tool used to fight the pandemic in Canada. How can we collect vast amounts of data to get ahead of the virus without that data being used for what Stefan calls the dark side of data analytics? I hope you enjoy this episode. Stefan, the pandemic has really upended many old ideas about what's possible and how the economy and society will function. You've been really at the forefront of discussions around data analytics and privacy for many years now. How do you see the discussion around contact tracing, which seems to be one of the critical parts of reopening our economy, connected to debates that you've been part of in marketing and analytics for many years? Yeah, thank you for, for having me. Um, the For me, the experience was a gradual shift toward uh, seeing what was going on in, from a privacy and, and marketing standpoint, and then seeing that there was just too many opportunities to fall on the what I call the dark side and, and do things that even without realizing that you're doing something evil, um, finding out that there was just too many opportunities. So gradually I shifted my interest toward privacy and ethics. And there was a, a really a turning point uh, when I spent about 45 minutes with uh, Christopher Wiley, the uh, whistleblower from Cambridge Analytica, I spent 45 minutes in, in a small room alone with him and asking questions. And for me, that was a turning point. That was the realization that there are just too many risks involved in the way marketing is done today. And then what I see today is some kind of conditioning of the masses to accept things that just a few months ago, we would have said, oh, no, no we don't want that. It, it's, it's way too intrusive from a privacy standpoint. But at the same time, we understand that there's obviously a sense of urgency. We understand that we can maybe do some sacrifice from a privacy standpoint if it's going to help fight the common you know, fight that we're trying to, to solve, uh, which obviously is you know, putting our energy together and, and fighting the pandemic. Um, so what we see today is, is really that the primary method put forward by those applications is, is using um, Bluetooth. And we have to know that Bluetooth was never designed from a technical standpoint to do something like what those applications are trying to do, which is essentially not finding where you are. So it's not the location, but it's the proximity. So it's the proximity to other people that are using the same application that you are yourself uh, using. So as you cross people, and we've heard that in the news many times, you know, explaining how it works. So as you cross people, 
those two devices will exchange encrypted keys that will essentially record your proximity to other people using the same application. And then from there, there there's you know all kinds of possibilities in terms of how much data you collect, where you store it, what you're going to do with it, whether it's going to be very intrusive from a privacy standpoint or whether it's going to be anonymized and, and so on. So we see that there are there's a lot of development going on in this area and, and up, you know, it makes sense and it's a good thing that people are asking questions. Is it going to be, you know, uh, secure? Uh, what is going to happen with the data? And how much am I willing to sacrifice my privacy in the hope that maybe it's going to help other people, um, you know, not get infected or things like that? Right. And I, you know, it's one of those areas, like everything else that we've seen in the last couple of months, where what we thought uh, was happening um, and, and was possible has really all changed. And so thinking about those really important questions and balancing those with the health requirements and those needs to actually get this under control and reopen the economy, I think that's critical. It seems like it's a huge part of this reopening story for many places. Particularly around the world, we've seen a number of countries that are further ahead from us. From your perspective, what's the rollout of the technology looked like in other countries, you know, South Korea, for example, or others where they're further ahead than we are? Yeah, that, well, I think the, the results are, you know, not as positive as one would hope for. Uh, there are many uh, technical constraints besides the, the fact that Bluetooth has a a proximity limitation, uh, but what happened if you? What is that? What do you mean by that? What's the proximity limitation in Bluetooth? Uh, you, the when you use a GPS, um, the precision of the GPS is about ten meters. Uh, I think Bluetooth is is closer to two to five meters maximum, something like that. So you need to actually be very close, and then what it creates is. Uh, what happened if, for example, the big difference between standing in an elevator for you know five minutes with two people, which is a, a closed space that has typically bad ventilation and stuff like that, versus standing for 30 minutes with 10 people outside where you have fresh air and everything. So if the application only collects the proximity, it doesn't have any information about the environment. And this is a big issue. Uh, so the risk of having uh, false positive, so basically saying, oh, you might have been close to someone who maybe had the virus, um, the risk of having the wrong information is is pretty big. Right. Uh, or simple things like, uh, what if you you go uh, in a store and uh, there's there's a plexiglass between you and the the cashier? You know, the, obviously it's different. So you're very close. But the pro the kind of proximity is different. So hopefully, with enough data and enough uh, research in this space, maybe this is going to be better. But as we see in South Korea, uh, what's happening? It, South Korea is often cited as as one of the you know earlier and and leading example of that. But they they had experience with a previous pandemic like in 2015 there was uh, uh, 17,000 people who were quarantined 
so they had that that kind of recent experience, and when that happened, the legal framework was modified to allow for much, much more uh, scrutiny of of what people are doing, um, even using security cameras, uh, credit card transactions, GPS, car navigation systems, um, even conversation could be used uh, right now to trace people, which is probably something that we're not willing to go as far from a Canadian perspective. Um, and then even, even, you know, if you look at other applications, so in the case of South Korea, the thing is, it's not only the application. It's a whole system that has been put in place to trace and monitor people, uh, which probably is, is going a little bit too far, at least from my perspective. Um, if we take another example, Singapore uh, is often you know, cited also as a good example uh, with their Trace Together application. Um, and, and that's even there uh, where it, it's, uh, it's deemed as being you know, one of the best example. They, they still use the manual uh, contact tracing. So the application doesn't replace what the health authorities are supposed to do. It augments the capacity of what they are doing to do, or it orients, you know, it, it guides into some directions where maybe there's there's a resurgence of of the virus in some areas, so they can you know they can send more resources in that area. But even there, only about forty percent of the people are using the application, which is not quite enough because the the estimate is that you would need over 50% of the population to use the same application actively in order for the data to be really representative and effective in this uh, context so we'll we'll see as you know the technology or the research in that space evolve maybe there's going to be uh, something else but but again it's it's something where it's the first time we're pushing the envelope uh, and even the health authorities are, you know, sometimes they make a decision on Monday and then on Wednesday, it's going to be something different. So, you know, some people say the plane is build, being built as we, as we fly. So that's really the case. Right. If you're saying that the examples of South Korea, Singapore are not quite analogous to the Canadian context, do you have a, an opinion around any jurisdictions where you're seeing that they're doing it right and they're getting the right balance as it relates to privacy and pandemic prevention effectiveness? Mm -hmm. In uh, it, one of the legislation or legal framework that I, I study a lot is uh, GDPR in, in Europe. They, they already had provisions for things like the what they, they call the lawful basis uh, for processing the data. And there are two interesting ones. One is, is it vital, uh, vital interest? Uh, and the second one is, is it for a public task or public health in this case? Those two provisions already allow the government and, and you know, to do some processing, uh, collect the data and process the data in, in some ways that was already, you know, thought about from a legal standpoint. But even with that, there's a big debate whether it's going too far or is it okay and, and those things. So even in Europe, uh, we're, we're asking the question. The interesting thing is you can have an application that will ask for permission for collecting the data and everything. 
whether it's Bluetooth or your GPS or you know any other technology, what's interesting is in Europe, in, in some places, the cell carriers, the cell providers, they give access to the data for research and academia and you know in, in the current situation. And what we have to understand is that those, uh, and it's the same thing here, obviously, when you walk around with your cell phone, it's constantly trying to find what is the best cell tower near you to offer you the best signal. This is an intrinsic part of any cell phone. And by doing that, by this, doing this ping to those cell towers, it's triangulating your location. So the, the, uh, the cell carriers already have a lot of data about where you are, and it's actually very precise. I don't know to which extent, but it, it is very precise. Those companies, those, those providers can actually make the data, the data available for, for this kind of purpose. So I'm surprised a little bit that there's not more research in this area rather than having people install an application and consent and everything. Uh, this, in fact, maybe could even be done without, you know, don't, no application to install, no consent to ask. It, it, it's part of the cell uh, capabilities to do that. So that's an area where I wonder why it's not more. In Canada, we have the Privacy, uh, privacy Commissioner uh, offered some guidance, but there's no application that has become kind of the recommended application yet. So for now, what they are doing is providing some guidance and recommendation. Eventually, I guess, when there's a, one application that is really recommended, they will really dig into it and, and make sure that everything is fine. But it, it's pretty much the same legal framework that you have for any organization that wants to collect personal data. So there's, there's a, uh, you need to have consent, uh, it needs to be secured, there needs to be disclosure, uh, processing needs to be done only for what it was intended for, and, and so on and so on. So those are not really different from what we have. If we look outside Canada, some countries don't, really have those kind of privacy concerns. They don't bother with that. You know, again, in South Korea, there's a, actually a public map where you can see where infected people are, uh, where they live and where they work and so on. I don't think this would be acceptable here. In Israel, it's another interesting example where it's actually a security agency that is responsible for the tracing, the app, uh, that is used. Uh, so they have a fair level of experience when it comes to uh, finding the location of people. Uh, and they've been doing it for you know over a decade, if not two. So we see that the uh, various countries have different approach to it. I think Canada is a little bit late uh, with this regard. We, you know, an application should have been deployed a, a while ago. Hopefully, what we're going to maybe this this delay will lead to a better application that will be at the forefront of of what is being done. Right. Do you think that part of the the delay is is inherent in the dynamics of the Canadian Constitution as it relates to health and the fact that there are multiple jurisdictions involved, both on the health side but also on the privacy side? Could you talk a little bit about the Canadian context as it relates? to these overlapping responsibilities and how contact tracing may actually be ruled out in a Canadian context? Mm -hmm. 
It would be, of course, it would be very interesting if there was a, a very strong coordination at the federal level, so that you know everyone used the same application. The volume of data would be larger, and there would be compatibility between the different provinces and so on. Because obviously, if each province decides to use a different application, there will be no compatibility. So, you know, I think this would be a good thing. What we see is that each province is already moving forward with something. So in Alberta, there's the AB Trace Together application that has been there for a little bit, almost to three, almost three weeks now. But the adoption rate is still, you know, about 4% based on the latest number I was able to find. So it's far from the level of adoption that would be required to really collect meaningful and useful data. Newfoundland is working on something. Ontario, I think they're looking at about a dozen different applications. So they've not decided which one they're going to pick. Here in Quebec, there's um, just uh, this uh, last Sunday, there was... uh, on a TV show, they, they really had a good interview with the artificial intelligence lab of University de Montréal under the supervision of uh, Joshua Bengio. He's like really a world authority when it comes to artificial intelligence. And they're close to release a new application, maybe early June. And this application will have a very different approach from what we see in other places around the world. It will leverage artificial intelligence, Bluetooth, maybe GPS, if they can get you know, the okay to integrate some location data. Um, so it's a, really a different approach. So maybe, hopefully, you know, if, it, if, it goes, if it goes forward, it's going to be something that is ahead of many of the other applications but still taking into account the concerns about privacy and ethics and legal framework and all those aspects. So the, the code is going to be open source. Uh, there is going to be an ethical committee from officials and people from the public who will you know, overlook the ethical aspect of, of the application. The data will be shared with public health and universities. Uh, no commercial interest. That's really important. So we'll see, but clearly what we see is it's it's not, there's no level playing field across the different provinces, which in the longer term maybe will be an issue. We'll see. What do you mean by level playing field? Is it just the consistency in approaches or is it actually that there's the difference in regulations? Yeah, I think it's more, I was thinking more in terms of compatibility between the apps but also the fact that those apps can collect different kind of information. If it's, you know, from a legal standpoint, the way they ask for permission and the way they sort the data and so on, if it's really, really different, it's going to be very confusing for people. So right now there's already an application at the Canadian level that you can, you can install, but it's, it's providing more of a kind of instructions and education and things like that. It's not actually tracing your location. So, you know, communication will be, key and trust, of course. You talked a little bit about how Quebec is already investigating some of these tools and there's the company in Montreal. That province has been one of the hardest hit in terms of the pandemic, but it's also been one of the first provinces to take the steps to restart its economy. And so I'm wondering what your thoughts are on the approach the Quebec government is taking and where the contact tracing and their efforts to, to figure this out 
how those are actually working in that province. It's your home province. I'm curious to know what you think there. Yeah. Um, well, of course, the, the usual disclaimer that I'm not an epidemiology expert. <laughs> I have a hard time saying it, you see. And uh, I'm not a healthcare official. So, but as a citizen, what I, what I think is that, of course, it, it's very, can uh, have concerns and, and it's very worrying to see how it's evolving in Montreal, especially. Uh, that's where, you know, the, the big uh, concentration of cases are. As of today, there is no mandatory masks in public transportation, for example. At best, you know, people are invited to wear a mask when they get outside. So I think you know, there are reasons for that, uh, why it's not enforced. But you know, this, this is worrying for me. But the, I, I guess the key point is that a traditional epidemiology tests of the population at large is I think one of the essential and key points in in tracing or, or making sure that we get a control over the virus. And up until very recently, that this this was not even available because they were not the capacity was not there to test people. So I think again, those applications will only augment or, or or maybe provide additional information for the health officials to direct the right resources at the right place at the right time but it it shouldn't replace what what needs to be done in terms of vast amount of testing of the population at large right i mean it seems to be a very multi-pronged strategy in many places you know i think this whole question of the ability to track and to connect people and more and more with the physical with people's phones that's been a debate that's been happening for at least the last decade. And it's not really a question ever of could we, it's really a question of should we. And the pandemic has really created the opportunity and the peril for a leveraging of some of these new technologies. So that has a lot of organizations thinking about what are the most fundamental principles that we must have as it relates to rolling this out. So the conference board came out recently, we called for five fundamental principles to mitigate the privacy risk. The offices like the Privacy Commissioner of Canada have been worked in the past to rein in and set some guidance around the kinds of data and the uses of that data. Earlier this month, the federal, provincial, and territorial privacy commissioners put out a statement calling, well, they called themselves the Privacy Guardians, which I thought was sort of a fun name for mm -hmm. what they were doing. But they issued a statement saying that these tracing apps can be used to help safeguard both health and privacy. And I wonder if you could talk a little bit about the guidance that the privacy commissioner has provided and then reflect on whether you think this is striking the right balance or anything you'd like to see as that rolls forward or, or anything else that would be a, an improvement, perhaps. Mm -hmm. the, of course, the, the probably the number one thing that will influence the success or failure of those initiatives is, is trust. And in order to build that trust, we need to have uh, not only guidance from a legal standpoint, but the way I see it is that the legal framework is a codification of what we find as a, as a society to be acceptable. So from an ethical standpoint, those guidance are also very important. So, you know, uh, making sure that you get uh, consent for collecting any of those data points, whether it's asking for your age and gender or asking for your location there needs to be consent. And it, it needs to be what we call informed consent so that 
it's not just a checkbox that say, okay, I agree with a long, long legal disclaimer. It needs to be something that people understand what they agree to. The other thing is, of course, is it legal to do it? So that, that's kind of obvious that if it's illegal, then you shouldn't do it. Um, but the, the other point that I think is super important is, what is the hypothesis? What is the science behind it? Not just collecting data for the sake of saying, oh yeah, that's cool, we're gonna get you know, millions and billions of data points, but there needs to be a scientific approach to it. So that's also very, very important. Uh, and this point is probably different from what we see usually uh, because the legal framework typically applies to any organization that wants to collect personal data. But here, the scientific aspect is super important. It needs to be limited to the actual situation of, of health crisis. Uh, no commercial interest, no, of course, no reselling of the data and no marketing with this data. That's kind of obvious that that would be unacceptable. The identification and anonymization of the data, so not being able to tie the data you collect back to an individual person. Some, obviously, like South Korea, they trace the data back to the individual. We don't want, the guidance is that we don't want that in Canada. We don't want to collect the data and be able to say, oh, this is Bob living in this at this address who said, uh, who got in contact with such and such people. It needs to be time limited. And, and how long it's going to be, we don't know because, you know, we, we don't know when the pandemic is going to be over. But the, all of this data needs to be used for the purpose that it was collected for and for the limited time that it is useful and be destroyed afterward. My little worry is that once those technologies are in place, there will be other events, there will be other crises, there will be other things that will happen that will kind of always justify that we need those kind of applications. So that's, that's my worry in this respect. Transparency, of course, about what is being collected, why, how it's stored, how it's going to be used, who will have access, what are the security levels, all those aspects, which frankly should be disclosed by any organization, any company that collects data. They should really uh, disclose this kind of information. Uh, accountability, you know, audit and ethical committees. And maybe the last one, which also is, of course, important, is how the security is going to be enforced from, you know, encryption, where the data is stored, all the physical and logical constraints to make sure that the data, data, uh, data is, is always secured. That's a lot of different considerations, but to me, they, they all make sense. It's just a good guidance that even without those applications, any organization should abide and play by those rules. And it would be, I think the world would be a better place. We have to see, I guess, which tools are picked and how they're rolled out to see how well those are, those principles are all put in place. I think the fact that our privacy commissioners have all sort of come together with some common framework. And it sounds like many people are paying attention to be very careful about this. Hopefully we'll get the balance right. One of the experiences, I guess, that we have and we can hopefully draw on is the existing privacy legislation that we have, uh, whether it's, you know, things like GDPR or CASEL that could be applied here. And, you know, one of the things I'll ask you is just sort of quickly talk a little bit about 
what that legislation, what it's about, and and how that might be relevant to the situation we're in today. Mm-hmm. Um, GDPR is the uh, General uh, Data Protection Regulation in Europe. CASEL is the Canadian anti-spam legislation, and we can add uh, PPDA, for example, or, or, or uh, the PPDA is the Personal Information Protection and Electronic Documents Act, and probably other other legal framework also. But I think the again those those are really a codification and and of what we find acceptable, but. The thing is, they tend to, they tend to, of course, not represent the state of the world at the moment where things happen, like a pandemic. You know, they, they probably didn't think of that when the uh, law got, you know, officialized and, and things like that. And and of and even on regular times when things are when there's no pandemic, we see that the le- legal aspect often is behind be what actually happens in the real world. So that's where the difference between the legal aspects. So you, you could be doing something that is totally uh, legal, but from an ethical standpoint, doing it would not be acceptable from the people in the society or the culture where you live. And I think we're lucky in Canada. We're, we have a, a fine balance. We are regulation are not as strict or as advanced as in Europe, uh, which, you know, could be criticized. But at least we have something that is better than what we see down south, where it's the Wild West and there's the legal framework are very, very open. And we see we see companies that are doing things that would be totally unacceptable and illegal uh, in Canada. But what, what's clear to me is that the current applications in the current context, it would be totally unacceptable to have a private or a corporate entity developing those applications for corporate benefits. I think it's a good thing that what we see right now are initiatives that are open. There's a lot of safeguards that at least we can think that they are not doing it for the wrong reasons. I don't think any of those people working on those applications are waking up in the morning and saying, oh, let's see how we can conquer the world. I don't think that's the, I hope if we have you know, faith in humanity, I hope that's not what's going on. Because of course, on social media, and there's a lot of debates on what those applications can do. And it's true that they could do, they could be harmful and do evil. But let's hope that that's not the case and give a chance to those applications and see how it evolves. It's the technology, not really the tracing for this specific pandemic reaction. It's the other it's the other applications. That's what you're referring to when you talk about the evil side, right? Yeah, well, evil or, or, or just like I was referring when, I, uh, when we began the conversation. Uh, for example, I saw a local agency here who the, the company is specialized in geolocation marketing. So they collect data. They, they took like 7 billion data points collected from about 8 million different cell phones across Canada. There's absolutely no disclosure how they got the data. There's no disclosure. There's no peer review. There's no methodology behind what they've done. But essentially, what they said is what they thought. I'm, I'm figuring what they thought is, oh, we have all of this data that we, we're sitting on a pile of data, which looks interesting. 
let's do cool, nice visualization with this data. And the, my worry is that they got a lot of press review and even uh, on TV, even on the news. And what happened is the, the news anchor actually showed a map showing some nice data, some nice visuals. But his comment was, well, we have those nice maps, uh, but I'll leave it up to you, the person watching the news, to figure out what it means. And this, I think, is super dangerous because in, in times where there's a lot of conspiracy theories and misinformation and, and fake news and all that, those, those aspects, putting a lot of data into a nice visual doesn't make anyone an epidemi epidemiology specialist or a healthcare official. So this kind of thing, I think we should be very worried about. And that's why... I'm glad there, there's those safeguards that are, are being thought about for the contact uh, tracing applications. Another example, which I think is interesting in some respect, but also maybe a little bit worrying, a cable and cell provider. Recently, just last week, they announced that they have a bracelet that typically is used for events like Festival d'été de Québec, you know, summer festival where you have thousands of people walking around. So those bracelets can actually serve as uh, tracing your movement, but also as a ticket to enter the premise and stuff. So they uh, collaborated with a company doing this kind of bracelet, but the purpose here is different. The purpose here is that employees, when they enter the workplace, would wear one of the, those bracelets, and it can actually send a signal if you get too close to one of your colleagues. But at the same time, it, same time, it also collects all of your contacts. Uh, all the people you've been close to in the hope that if ever there's someone who's been exposed to the virus, you're going to be able to tell the other employees, you know, you need to stay home for two weeks or something like that. So it, of course it brings huge privacy concerns because what is the control of an employer over the employee to force those employees to wear those bracelets? What happened if, you know, you're very careful in the workplace, but when you get outside and maybe you don't wear the bracelet anymore, uh, unless the employer asks you to wear the bracelet all the time, which would be, you know, even more worrying. So it's a limited purpose, but I'm not sure about the actual and positive impact of something like that. But I think it's a good thing to ask. It's, it's a good thing to consider. Well, like so many things out of this, it all sounds a little bit out of 1984 and a little bit out of some dystopian novels, but it's also it sounds sci-fi, but it's it's very much real here today. And, and Stefan, I really appreciate you coming to talk to us about your perspective on sort of balancing that privacy and ethics side. I wonder, do you have any parting thoughts or any sort of conclusions to wrap up this conversation? Yeah, I, I saw um, a picture of someone on doing street art. And it was uh, written COVID-19, but the some like adding 84 at the end. So it made COVID-1984. I thought it was brilliant in terms of the message that it sends that, yes, we, we are fighting the pandemic, but we are also opening the door to much more, like you said, 1984 kind of tracing people everywhere. And a lot of people compare this pandemic to uh, World War II. You know, the, the chief of the United Nations said that. Uh, many country leaders also said that it was similar to World War II, or at least, you know, the biggest challenge since World War II. One thing that I noticed 
with my marketing background is that the commercials we see on TV, they tend to be very similar. They tend to always have a nice music and uh, thank the, uh, you know, the frontline workers and stuff like that, which is, which is great, very positive. And some people you know, say, they, well, maybe it's a lack of creativity or the, those brands rush to do some, some advertising. But I prefer to see that as uh, in the same way of what happened in uh, World War II, where all the communications, all the brands were going in the same direction of mobilization, cooperation, uh, dedication to fight the similar cause, uh, sacrifice and resiliency. So, you know, I prefer to see it that way. And sadly, of course, lives are being lost. There's probably going to be a huge economic meltdown. It's going to hit hard, but hopefully our little sacrifice is maybe going to be what is needed to be able to fight the pandemic, get a control over it, maybe not eliminate it completely, but at least get a better control. So many, change, many things will change post-COVID. We all heard that many times, but hopefully like after World War II, hopefully there will be a boom in innovation and hopefully a strong economic recovery also. So that's my wish. Yeah, I think that's I think that's everyone's wish. And it's certainly where our forecasts are and where we see good optimism is that in these sorts of times of change, much of that change can result in optimism and new opportunity. And Stefan, I think you've done a great job of helping us to understand a bit more around this contact tracing and the kinds of debates as it relates to managing the pandemic, using this tool and this technology to move us forward, while keeping in mind the importance uh, of privacy and the, and the data side. So thank you so much for joining us, Stefan. This has been great. Thank you for having me. You've been listening to Bright Future by the Conference Board of Canada. This series is produced by Jen DeHamel, Nancy Nguyen is our audio engineer, and Andy Joy is our writer. Ideas were contributed by Rob Collins and Aaron Brophy. I'm Michael Bassett, and I'm the host and executive producer for this series. The views expressed by our guests are theirs alone and do not reflect the conference board's opinion. For more podcasts, videos, commentary, and ideas, visit conferenceboard.ca.